Welcome to the Optimum Communications Podcast. I'm Richard Staines. I'm here with Klaas Zoydeveld, CEO of RNA Biotech Versameb, Isabel Ferreira, who's Chief Business Officer at Versameb, and Roger Demokowski, Professor of Urology and Surgery at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. They're here to talk to us about the project they're working on, which is an mRNA therapy for stress urinary incontinence, which is also known as SUI. So um, my first uh, question is to Roger. So um, tell us, um, you know, in your experiences in the clinic, what is the impact of SUI on women's lives? How common is it? And what lifestyle changes might they have to make? Please. Thank you very much. Stress urinary incontinence, SUI, is actually a, perhaps the, not the best use of the term stress. It, this has nothing to do with psychologic stress. It implies that women lose control of their urination, uh, usually related to coughing, sneezing, laughing, running, lifting, jumping, changing positions. So there's a variety of reasons and associated activities with the loss of urine. This is most commonly seen due to childbirth and pregnancy. It can also be seen uh, as the years go by related to the change uh, of hormonal status related to menopause. It's an extremely common condition. The most recent data suggests that about 40% of all women in the world will experience urinary incontinence at some point in their life related to stress or effort-related urinary loss, which is a tremendous number of people if you consider that number of of women uh, experiencing these symptoms through life. These symptoms have tremendous emotional and social impacts on women and can cause complete change in physical activity and in terms of reduction of activity, if you reduce activity, you tend to lose less urine. So women will actually change their habits. They'll stop running. They'll stop playing tennis. They'll stop doing the things they very much enjoy. And as incontinence progresses, many women will actually become social outcasts and withdraw from many of the other social activities that they like, such as church going eating out with the family at restaurants, uh, doing other things that um, we all take for granted. But obviously, the loss of urine is not only um, socially embarrassing, but it's tremendously impactful from the circumstance of self-respect. Many women are just tremendously devastated by this symptomatology. In terms of management, uh, again, in terms of changing their activity level, that's the first thing that many women do. But often they will also do such things as restrict their fluid intake. And it's not uncommon to see women who actually dehydrate themselves to try to control their urinary loss. And that's not very healthy at all, obviously. Urinary loss, such as urinary incontinence, is also associated with such side effects as slipping and falling. It's also associated with urinary tract infection. So we know this condition is not only impactful from the standpoint of the individual themselves, but also from the standpoint of putting them at risk for such things as infections, which can cause substantial other problems for them as the years go by. And what kind of treatments are available today, please? The treatments include not only the behavioral treatments we discussed, there are a variety of exercises that can be done to strengthen the muscles around the urine channel and bladder. We call that area the pelvic floor. Many women will do uh, exercises and have been exposed to exercises that their gynecologist has prescribed after childbirth, which are known as Kegel's exercises, which are named uh, for a, a Dr. Kegel who described the tightening of the muscles of the pelvic floor. These are exercises that anyone can do. They involve essentially strengthening the control mechanism around the urine channel. 
There are more dedicated exercises that can be done with the assistance of a physiatrist or a physiotherapist. And these are essentially coached exercises where someone actually works with the woman to help strengthen her pelvic floor. If those don't work, there are a variety of devices that are available both without physician prescription and also with physician prescription that can be used externally or within the vagina to strengthen those muscles. There are also less invasive treatments. There are some laser treatments that have been uh, prescribed for the treatment of urinary incontinence. And also there is the use of fillers or what we call bulking agents, injections that can be injected directly into the urine channel to try to prevent urinary loss. All of these are reasonable uh, options. Unfortunately, many of them lack uh, significant benefit for the individual. And even when there is benefit, many of these therapies are really limited in terms of the length of time of benefit for women. So surgery, unfortunately, is one of the most commonly prescribed initial treatments that women receive. Surgery can be done with or without man-made mesh. Uh, It involves recreating the foundation or support of the urine channel and bladder. Those surgeries are obviously associated with the risks of surgery. And unfortunately, even surgery uh, has durability concerns. Most of the operations, if they last for 10 years, we consider ourselves lucky. And there are complications associated with surgery that can impact the woman, not only from the standpoint of uh, the risk of anesthesia and the risks of bleeding and blood clots, but there are also complications associated with the use of some of the meshes, for instance, and also from the, just the operative procedure itself. So again, these complications must be discussed and a woman must be aware of these risks before just choosing surgery. Although surgery may sound like the easiest method of management, there are these associated and attendant risks and also the lack of durability with surgery that really have uh, caused us to look for other options for the treatment of urinary incontinence. And I would say that we really need better options that are much more centered towards what women want and are much less risky for the individual in terms of providing her benefit for these very significant symptoms that impact her. Thank you. And so uh, moving on to Klaus and Isabel, please could you tell me how Versamab's technology, tell us about it and how it could help, please. So Versamab is an RNA therapeutics company, and we've developed an innovative technology which allows us to enhance the mRNA to make it more potent and more effective so that essentially you need much less mRNA and potentially have a safer drug. We're applying this technology to our lead indication in, in stress urine incontinence, where using a, a coding sequence for a, a growth factor, we're actually triggering a regenerative process so that the muscle or the muscle can actually regenerate itself so that the damage done, as Roger explained, is actually repaired. And we're aiming to actually develop a therapy in women with stress and incontinence so that they can actually use it once, potentially trigger the regenerative process, and ultimately see a benefit after a few weeks. We hope, based on animal studies, we actually see a very prolonged effect, and we hope that this effect will be reducible in, in women as well. And maybe, Isabel, you, if you could tell us where it is in development and the plans to uh, develop it in the, in the near future, please. Sure. We are currently uh, preparing to submit our IND. We received uh, FDA uh, feedback, which was uh, for us uh, very surprising and positive that we could go directly into a phase 2A in women. And we plan to submit the IND this year and start the phase the end of this year, the clinical trial. Great stuff. And so just moving on to the challenges, maybe the area is facing because 
it's a hugely uh, common disease, but as Roger's already pointed out, they're li- limited to options in terms of uh, treatment. So just tell me you know, what kind of op- barriers there are, how can you overcome them? How do you get investors interested in this technology? Well, I think to start with, there is a general issue, right, with investment in women's health. And typically from the past, this investment has been much more focused on fertility and reproductive services. And I think it has to do historically on the the role of the women in society. You know, I hope I'm not being too challenging here, but you really see this. You really see that this is where there are medicines. This is where a lot of companies uh, spent uh, a lot of, uh, you know, budget. And it's even more interesting that in um, 2021, I think it was 21 analysis from the NIH, they concluded that the organization was disproportionately funding studies on diseases that primarily affect men. And this means basically that the women's health research depends a lot on outside investors to fill in the gaps. But this also means that, you know, animal models primary research is just not happening in areas that affect women because there is not the funding available. And then it's much more difficult, first of all, to fund startups, right, on those areas because the research is not advanced enough. And second of all, for the investors to pick up on it because there's not enough experience on what it looks like from a market perspective and where can it take you. And I think it's really about creating this awareness, you know, that uh, women are 50% of the population and there is a lot of diseases that really need to be uh, looked into and that are affecting uh, women, even if they are not spoken about, right? Because I think that's the next issue is that you would not speak about having urinary incontinence to everyone in a room, right? It's a very sensitive issue. Absolutely. And I mean, just moving on to my next question. So as, as a company, Versameb's got this technology, a lot of companies have already done, you know, it's a very novel way of looking at it. And Versameb really um, has got it into the t- clinic almost. So what characteristics must a company have to succeed in this area? And what are the potential rewards? I mean, there's a couple of things, right? I mean, alluding or coming back to what, what Isabel mentioned, I think one of the things we're on the upside very lucky with, of course, is that the science, particularly in search and incontinence, has actually evolved in the last sort of five years. So we're able to sort of piggyback on that to actually develop a, a therapy. Coming back to the to you know what characteristics a company must have, I think of course innovation is key. You need to have an innovation, innovative product, an innovative platform, which we have. But then at the same time, you also need to look at you know where, where is the opportunity, where does it make sense to actually develop a drug, and then have the right people on the team. And and I think you know with Isabel with our chief scientific officer with, with the other team members. Uh, we actually have a very experienced team which has developed a number of drugs over time, which works, and then developed a number of companies over time. So I believe these are some of the key ingredients to succeed in this area. What are the potential rewards? I think rewards is always a difficult term, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're driven by, you know, wanting to develop a, a drug for, say, areas of, of, say, unmet need. With that comes failure. And of course, if, if things, you know, go well, with that sort of comes success. Ultimately, I think it's about being able to develop a drug which works and which actually makes it to the clinic. I think that's very rewarding in itself. Any other thoughts, Isabel, before we wrap up? I think it is very important to be persistent in these type of areas because I think one of the issues is that venture capitalists are sometimes a little bit more um, focused on the areas where everyone is working on, right? So they really like oncology, they really like rare diseases, so they like 
very specific areas. And that makes it just more difficult to speak with people from the venture capitalist world that actually has enough knowledge in the area that we are working to have, you know, a comprehensive discussion. But I think the payoff could be huge, right? Because we are treating what you would call the blue sky indication, where there is not a lot of uh, choices for the women that want a non-invasive treatment that is really treating the cause of the disease, in this case, you know, the weakness of the urinary sphincter. And I think this is where it's our stronghold. And this is where if we do have something, I think it could be so impactful, both for patients, but also for the uptake from medical doctors and for the entire field in itself.